1: This is the Josh Marshall podcast with Kate Rika. We have we're probably going to have a slightly foreshortened episode of the podcast today. Uh, we're recording this Wednesday just after noon. Uh, we're going right into the Thanksgiving holiday. Um, probably a lot of you are traveling right now, so I guess it's now that I think about it, I guess it's possible that some of uh, some of you will be listening to the podcast either this evening, Wednesday evening, or tomorrow when you're traveling to wherever your Thanksgiving family celebration is, or maybe when you're cooking or something like that. In any case, as as you can tell, the the domestic news has in a way kind of slowed down a little. The domestic political news, for understandable reasons, a huge amount of the space that is normally occupied by domestic political news has been taken up by the situation in Israel-Palestine and Gaza, with everything that you know about unfolding there. As we record, we seem to be in this going into a multi-day process of both a temporary ceasefire and a mutual I don't want to say it's a mutual release of hostages, a a release of hostages by Hamas and a release of about three times the number of Palestinian prisoners who've been charged with various terrorism related crimes in Israel. Uh, So that's happening. And on the domestic front, as I said, there's not as much going on because so much of the national news is tied into you know, tied onto the stuff, tied into the stuff happening on Capitol Hill, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing we are going to talk about is we have yet another voting rights case that now seems like it will be percolating up through the courts, and uh, I am not even sure we can say deal another blow to the Voting Rights Act because it's kind of on its on its heels or or on its back as it is. But another one has come up. And one thing, I'm not sure how much play this has got in, in the coverage of this, hard to say how relevant it is, but it's one of the widest uh, judicial districts in the circuits in this country. Obviously, you know, the Northeast has a substantial African-American minority population. A lot of the West Coast does, the South does, the Upper Midwest does. But there's a kind of a, a, if if you kind of zoom in sort of on the Mississippi River, the Upper Mississippi River, then up into the Prairie States, you can come up with a pretty white, in some cases, very lily white uh, circuit, the Eighth Circuit. You got South Dakota, right? Now, in fact, in the Dakotas, you actually have some, it doesn't they, it doesn't tend to get a lot of attention, but you actually have some pretty real uh, voting rights cases tied to reservations in those states. Uh, years and years and years ago, I remember TPM, we covered very closely two Senate races in South Dakota, and there is a very similar story there about voter suppression on the reservations within the state. So it's very similar to what we're used to in in many parts of the country with African American voters, only it's it's Native American voters. So we're gonna get into that, get into uh, a couple other issues as well. But before we do, I want to uh, remind you of something. This is sort of like one of those ads for ourselves, but it's an important one. So we are one year out from the 2024 election. And as you know, a lot of coverage of election news, political political news in general, but especially coverage of elections in this country is very bad. It's not good stuff. We do it different. We cover elections the way they should be covered in a way a lot of you would like to see them covered. So. As as part of this one-year-out period, we are offering a TPM election mega-sale. If you subscribe now, you get 30% off an annual membership, and you are guaranteed to get our full coverage through the 2024 election. Everything that happens over the next year. So if you are a listener to the podcast and you're not a subscriber, now is a great time to sign up. Head head to the site. You know, you'll see ads for signing up as part of this mega deal. Maybe you used to be a subscriber and your subscription lapsed. Another really good time. Subscribe now. You'll get all of our entire year of election coverage. So stop by the site, sign up, 30% off right now as part of this TPM election mega sale. So, okay, Kate, what is the... What is this Eighth Circuit uh, decision all about?
0: So the wonky term is this is about the private right of action, um, which basically just means that for the past, you know, decades that the Voting Rights Act has been in place, people have interpreted it to mean that private individuals can sue under this statute. Um, So the most often kind of arrangement we see are these kind of voting rights or civil rights organizations, you know, NAACP or League of Women Voters, those kinds of organizations, coupling with, you know, one or, or a handful of individual voters to bring these racial dilution cases under the VRA to, to argue that, you know, uh, a state is gerrymandering in a way to dilute the force of the Black vote. Usually, that's the kind of most common case like this. So the Eighth Circuit Following on the heels of this district court judge, which, surprise, surprise, a Trump appointee, as is the appellate judge who wrote the opinion, find that despite the decades of cases kind of built upon this assumption that private individuals can sue under this law, despite the Supreme Court Pretty frequently, kind of this comes up and they refer to it. They haven't had the question squarely before them, but they've kind of talked about it before. And you've got, you know, a couple, you had Gorsuch and and Thomas be kind of like, I don't think this is real and, and sending up test balloons to be like, hey, right wing litigants, you guys should probably do a case about this. But, you know, the majority of the others have kind of referred to it in other cases, specifically a case about whether private rights of action existed for a different part of the VRA and kind of rested their decision on their on their assumption that, yeah, like th- this is a thing under section two. So it's also a thing under section 10. Um, and then on top of that, you have congressional committees outright saying, you know, when when it comes time to kind of re-up the law, saying by the way, Congress intended for this to have a private right of action. So, you know, there's no confusion about that. Despite all of that, you had this one district guy and then these two guys at the appellate level, because for for reasons we don't have to get into and for potentially disputed or reasons that could be disputed, this case did not go up through the usual redistricting pipeline, which is a three-judge panel with direct review to the Supreme Court. This one came up. Through you know the more kind of the way that most cases are these days, which is one district judge up to a a, an appellate um, panel. But you know all told, that means you've got three guys who have said, forget about all these cases, forget about the Supreme Court, what they said, that's just dicta. Um, You know, forget what Congress said. You can't really trust legislators. You know, all that was wrong. We're the only ones who have it right. No private cause of action. The And in fact, the only singular person who can bring Section 2 VRA cases is the U.S. Attorney General. That's it. End of list. Um, and then practically, you know, I've been kind of calling up, struggling to call up. This is a worst time for reporting in the whole entire year these days before Thanksgiving. But talking to voting rights people who are saying, like 98% of VRA cases are brought by private litigants. Um, You know, I talked to one guy who um, his name is Doug Spencer and he runs the all about redistricting page, which is this really kind of valuable um, consortium of all the various redistricting news going on. He said they're tracking 200 cases all just from this, this most recent cycle. Um, Three of those involved the DOJ and they didn't bring the case in any of them. They just joined later. Just to give you a sense, and that's under a Democratic administration, right? Like we're talking about... Five guys, you know, gender inclusive guys who are working in the voting rights section of the DOJ who are in charge of all of this. I mean, under a Republican administration, there would be no such cases, right? It, it would crash to a halt. So the practical effect of this would be this last kind of remaining piece of the VRA that continues to be a weapon is just taken away. Um, it's just that's kind and of the end. Let's be clear. Of it. What,
1: is, what is Section 2? What is that piece?
0: Section two is like the piece that talks about the vote dilution cases. So that's the part of the law that, you know, now that the Supreme Court has kind of gotten rid you know, well, to for all intents and purposes, gotten rid of pre-clearance, right? That used to be a really strong part of the VRA, where um, you know areas that had history of racially discriminatory voting practices had to get any changes in their voting laws passed with the DOJ before um, they they could put them into effect. That's gone, so that has left the Section Two, these vote dilution cases, as like biggest remaining weapon to kind of fight gerrymandering, particularly because the Supreme Court has also said federal courts cannot hear partial uh, partisan gerrymandering cases. So all that's left on the federal level are racial gerrymandering cases. And this is the way that people bring those cases. Um,
1: And by dilution, generally, we mean basically spreading the minority voters out amongst a, a, a lot of different districts, so they don't really have any any substantial power in any of those individual districts. That general right. idea.
0: The kind of shorthand is you know cracking or packing, either spreading them out so thinly that their vote is um, kind of. Uh, Dissolved amid all the all the white leaning vote, um, or uh, packing them all into one super super you know D plus thirty five district, so they can't affect the vote in any other district um, to try to curtail the losses. So that's where we are. I've surveyed a lot of people. People are pretty confident, even given this Supreme Court's history on the VRA, that this decision wouldn't stand um, because it's so out of left field. It's so kind of made up out of whole cloth, despite the fact that it's not like this is a question no one's thought of before. It's been clearly kind of percolating, even if there isn't a lot of precedent, kind of squarely addressing the question. Due to a separate case from a few weeks ago, there's now like a circuit split with the the Fifth Circuit, which is funny because that's the one we always think of as like the hotbed for legal conservatism and they actually decided the other way. Um, So that brings me to an important point with this um, Eighth Circuit case, which is the Trump district judge, is the one who introduced this question into the proceedings. Like, neither of the parties had raised it independently until he raised it by himself and then ultimately dismissed the case on his finding that you can't bring private litigant lawsuits under under Section 2.
1: Is there, is there I, I know that um, sometimes in legislation it will say explicitly these kinds of litigants can bring a case. It's clearly assumed since there have been updates of the VRA, and it's always been this way. So, if there was like some misunderstanding, if it were the case that Congress didn't think there should be private litigants, it's not like this hasn't been revisited since 1965. Yeah.
0: Um, so the reality is, is it, it doesn't say it doesn't say explicitly who can. Who can bring them?
1: So I'm I'm curious there though if I would assume it came up in these arguments in in whatever this opinion was that there is some default that that if it's not uh, if it's not addressed explicitly in the legislation that it just is automatic that any that you know anybody can 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 bring a case within the law is that what is the Case uh, case law or established procedure, and what what argument did these? I guess it's not even litigants, since as you said, it was basically the, the 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 trial court judge just deciding it on on his own. So in a way, he's like the litigant. But what arguments were made within case law precedent, etc., that they argued allowed them to make this, you know, make this finding.
0: I mean, you know, the short answer is they say the silence means that this practice isn't allowed and extrapolating further, you know, it's only explicit about the USAG kind of elsewhere in the statute. So bada bing, bada boom, that's what the silence must have meant. Um, And in this kind of thing, you know, when a when a statute is silent. You know, even that is kind of it's it's freighted, right? Because this especially amid this conservative legal movement, they often claim statutory ambiguity as kind of the way in for weakening agencies or, or making regulation um, you know, toothless. But in, in this case, you know, it's not like there was it, w- it was silent. The law is silent and people for, for ages have just been going back and forth. Right. Courts don't know what to do about it. There's like all this conflict. There's this clear kind of naughty question. It could be interpreted either way. We just don't know. Right. And then like that goes to the Supreme Court and they kind of settle it, which is why in this case, even though there's not. A ton of kind of explicit case law on this question, that's where you have this whole kind of body of, well, we've been doing it this way for a million years and no one had a problem with it until now. So that kind of stands in for it. You know, the one of the judges, a a Bush appointee on the appellate court, wrote in dissent. And his whole thing was like, Yeah, I'd really rather not upset the Apple cart without you know, kind of substantive proof that this is creating problems, um, you know, that it's creating kind of circuit chaos. And at that point, you know, the Supreme Court should decide it. So I would just leave, leave things be. And then if the court kind of wants to take up this question, let them.
1: Yeah, because it's on its face. And this is clearly the point for the Trump appointees here. Clearly, this has really dramatic effects because as you, with with the numbers you noted before, virtually all cases are by private, private litigants. So it's not like this is just a small housekeeping thing. This has, this has huge effects. And it seems like even the judges themselves were clear that there's really no evidence. This is a problem. It's just not explicitly stated that it can happen. And, 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 because of that, the fact that it's been universally assumed forever, that that have stayed. Let, let me, when um, you said at the beginning, two Trump judges, that's because it's a three court panel and that it was two to one, I guess, at the appellate. And this that, this Bush guy right. was the one who was in dissent.
0: But the Trump judges I was referring to is you have the one district guy is a Trump judge and the one on the appellate court who wrote the decision was a Trump judge. But then he was joined in that decision by a Bush appointee. So and the so appellate court was, had two bushes and one Trump on it.
1: Got it. Got it. Got it. Does it Does this have? Does this have application? I mean, there's Voting Rights Act isn't the only law, federal law that that has private litigants. So is this? Is there some? Is there some question that this could open up all sorts of other questions? I mean, it wouldn't. I don't think it would be a bummer for them because this is, this sounds like part of their whole anti-administrative state right. thing that um, you don't have like you know do-gooders you know, lawyer do-gooders, like messing everything up all the time.
0: That has not really come up in my conversation. So I think this might be more specific to the VRA. But one interesting wrinkle here is uh, one person I talked to said there could be a potential workaround here, which is Section 1983, which our wonkiest minded listeners will remember from when I was doing a lot of reporting on that Televsky Supreme Court case that um, mm-hmm. dealt with whether uh, beneficiaries of Medicare could sue mm-hmm. under that yep. law when their rights are being neglected. That is a General right of action. And so it's in this case, like that as an enforcement mechanism would not necessarily be, you know, it's not written into the VRA, but there could potentially be a workaround where you say, you know, my state, my rights, my constitutional rights um, are being neglected, denied, violated by the state. Therefore, under color of section 1983, I can bring this lawsuit and kind of perhaps do a workaround without the VRA, if this were to stand. Um, now, there, obviously, we just had this big Supreme Court case where you had, um, you know, some not to the extent of other cases, but some kind of right wing actors trying to get rid of that, that right of action. So it's it's not to say that anything would kind of be safe in, in this landscape. But, you know, in terms of uh, other laws that could be kind of t- roped into this, you can bet that, you know, If this were to stand, you would have kind of voting rights and civil rights groups start getting creative, trying to find like other mechanisms, um, even though they would obviously be bringing those claims in an increasingly kind of hostile judiciary to any sort of um, minority voting right protections.
1: And, And just for our listeners, when we say private litigants here or private action... We're not talking about like just like Fred thought something was wrong. Generally speaking, we're talking about like the NAACP or like a state democratic party, right? I mean, we're talking about these are generally organization, non-government organizations that are the ones who bring this up.
0: And the thing, you know, that is so kind of crushing about that is. As it is, these VRA uh, vote dilution cases are like super expensive. It's a really, really um, onerous thing to prove because there are these preconditions you have to satisfy and you have to go deep into the demographics of the state and the history of the state. And So as it is, when VRA cases get brought, it's nearly always about the most egregious, flagrant kind of weakening of minority voters' power, we already are nowhere near kind of the edge of cases that, you know, maybe you'll win, maybe you won't, might as well bring them. Basically, everything that's getting brought is like a slam dunk because of the expense, because of the fact that, you know, the defendants in these cases are like voters and the people bringing the cases for them, as you say, are, you know, NGOs or just kind of do-gooder, good government organizations, which tend not to be like flush with money, right? So as it is, we're only getting cases where it's just like undeniable kind of state malfeasance. Um, so, you know, any kind of idea that well, oh, well, there's over enforcement of the VRA is just like nowhere near the reality.
1: Right, right, right. And 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 just to we we sort of alluded to this at the beginning of our discussion here, but um, among everything else, it basically means there will be no Voting Rights Act unless there's a Democratic president. I mean, like in theory, if if something like this were to succeed, you could, like a Democratic president could say, all right, we're going to hire like a hundred lawyers for the vote, you know, for the voting rights division and just kind of like take this on ourselves, but nothing under um, a a Republican president, given where the Republican party is on this stuff now.
0: And there's the additional wrinkle that should this yeah, well, to a two-part wrinkle. The first part is we're currently having a lot of these really intense redistricting legal battles upon which control of the House in 2024, like may well rest. So there's no chance you're not going to have, you know, Louisiana or Georgia or some of these like particularly red southern states who are fighting tooth and nail to not have to create another Democratic seat. There's no way we're not going to have them if they haven't already filed being like, hey, hey, look at this decision. Like this lawsuit was invalid in the first place. And at the very least, you should pause all this stuff until that's sorted out, which is going to take years, right, which would help them kind of kick the can past the 2024 election. And then the second part of that wrinkle is, what about the cases in the last few years where the voters have kind of won their VRA cases? Like, you're definitely going to have a lot of those, the people on the other side of those cases come back to judges and be like, well, are you going to vacate this? Are you going to remand this? Like, this lawsuit was based on illegitimate grounds. So, you know, there's just this whole tidal wave of chaos that it would be unleashed, which is kind of part of why a lot of experts think that even in this court, which is generally so hostile to voting rights, the Supreme Court, that this is one they might not want to touch because it's so flimsy, it's so like rootless, and it would just have these really far-reaching effects that would have visible kind of countrywide chaos.
1: But- to your, your, your point, help me understand how this plays out in 2024. Is there, well, first of all, at the moment, this only applies in the Eighth Circuit, right?
0: That's right. So it only to the states that the Eighth Circuit governs.
1: And the Eighth Circuit does not include, I mean, not like it doesn't matter in the Eighth Circuit, but the Eighth Circuit, I believe, is what, uh, Arkansas, Missouri, up into the Prairie States, kind of this uh, group of states, uh, you know, sort of mm-hmm. along the Mississippi Mississippi Upper Mississippi River Valley. Um, is it? But in terms of it being reviewed in the Eighth Circuit, that it's not like the the, the court is going to just like step in immediately. This is just going to be in the normal course of if they decide to take it up in the next um, the next calendar year.
0: Right. A few things could happen. Now, the Eighth Circuit might even hear this case on bonk, which means you know the whole circuit versus just this panel and. Some experts think if that happens, it'll probably get overturned at the 8th and not even get to the Supreme Court. But if the Supreme Court were to take it up, it's just like no chance it would happen pre the 2024 election for them to kind of take it up and get it on their on their docket and have it scheduled before then. it just they'd. Don't tend to move that quickly. Um, so, like you said, right now this just governs the states under the Eighth Circuit, which I have to double check, but I'm almost positive none of those states were pre-clearance states back when that existed with the VRA. Which, as you say, demographic makeups um, just make those like not the kind of hotbeds of minority voter suppression. Though, of course, that exists everywhere, but not to the extent that you know the the South is. Like that's where kind right. of all of the. The ongoing action is happening. Um, so that's where we're are, we are right now. And I think the bigger picture thing here is just this is such a continuation of themes that, you know, we've talked about on the pod and that we've seen, Ever since Trump's election, which is you've got the, the far right justices on the Supreme Court sending out the bat signal, you know, telling litigants like, hey, I would be open to hearing a case about this. Um, you've got these Trump appointees who are super comfortable breaking from precedent and kind of handing down decisions that favor their partisan priorities without much bothering about rooting those in a rigorous defense Um And you've got, you know, like Professor Spencer, who I mentioned earlier, just made a really good point on this front, that it's like this decimating of what scant minority voter protections we have at a time where our country is so openly embroiled in warfare about whether we're going to keep this kind of liberal democracy with you know, uh, minority rights and, and an enfranchisement versus if we're going to kind of let it slide into this authoritarian system where voters are gerrymandered out of relevance or voter suppressed out of relevance. Um, and it's just, you know, this case is just such a good microcosm of all those kind of bigger, um, dynamics that are, are straining our country right now. More of this scintillating content after these messages. Back to the show.
1: So that's a good uh, segue on the on the broader question of authoritarianism. We have uh, an ongoing litigation about the gag order of President Trump tied to his January sixth trial. Uh, what's what's that about? Why, why? Who has who has intervened in that case?
0: So th- yeah, this was like a, a branch off that main trial, which is about his culpability in January sixth and. You know, this isn't the only one of his many cases where this is coming up. But Trump's predilection for like not only kind of posting to a deranged degree about these cases he's involved in, but singling out these often really kind of anodyne individuals who are like related to the trial, but aren't, you know, in in kind of nondescript ways. Like, obviously, you have him going over after the judges and the prosecutors. But, you know, we just saw in the New York fraud case, he picked out the poor clerk of the judge and (laughs) called her Schumer's girlfriend And all this kind of, and decided she was running the case against him. But anyway, all that kind of stuff is now creating in multiple of his cases these tangential whole, you know, arguments, briefings, the whole nine yards about whether or not he should be put under a gag order, what the parameters of that gag order should be, and the valid questions of you got to be careful with the rights of criminal defendants, right? Because they're already not true, you know, not just Trump, but in, in a general, genre. You've already got those people who you're freer to take rights away from than you would with other people. So I think there is like a, a good faith reason to want to tread carefully here. Um, and then Trump just makes it a farcical, right? Because it's like he'll have a gag order lifted by an appellate court and then go on a tweeting spree or a truth socialing spree. And in this January 6th case, the it was actually three appointees by Democratic presidents, two Obamas and a Biden, who was debating this on the D.C. circuit, um, this lower court judge had put a gag order in place, a very honestly circumspect one, where she said, basically, you can't like rile up your supporters to go like kill people involved in these cases, but you are free to pontificate about the unfairness of it all, the political machinations, the deep state at work, you know, the Joe Biden just out to silence his whatever, all that is fair game. You just need to stop finding poor like staffers and saying, well, she's sleeping with Schumer and she's the reason why I'm in this mess. Right. Um. So the circuit was honestly, you could tell, extremely torn. Like they ble- they beat the Trump guy to a pulp because the Trump lawyer is saying he should have no restrictions on his speech whatsoever. Um, He just by virtue of the fact that he's a candidate and the American people deserve to hear what he's saying. And like, we need to be even more careful with his rights than usual because he's running for office.
1: So they're hanging it less on just, you shouldn't, the the bar should be very high for surrendering rights before you've been convicted of anything. So sort of seeing him through the prism of, he's just an unconvicted criminal, you know, criminal defendant. Um, And he's the issue, not the rights of his supporters and the election they're very much hanging it on the election that we have an election and this is compromising the election.
0: Exactly. And keep, you know, going back to this argument of like, well, Trump's not responsible for what his followers do, which as we have seen from the various kind of litigation post January 6th, like that is a genuinely hard thing to prove in a court of law that even these like inflammatory things, if they fall short of Trump being like, I want you to you know, Rambo up and go to this person's house. It's like, it's hard to prove that that's what right, kind right, of. Right. Um, so anyway, they kind of beat Trump's guy to a pulp and and had a lot of quotes about, you know, it's, it's very obvious that you are not at all concerned about a fair trial, about, you know, kind of keeping the, the proceedings as, as clean um, as, as possible. But then when the government lawyer got up, it, it was kind of the same treatment, like very hard, a lot of hypotheticals, a lot of things as granular as like, would this Trump insult be okay with this gag order, or would it not? Um, a lot of back and forth about Jack Smith, the pros- special prosecutor in particular, because does he count as the staff members who tr- they're trying to get Trump to stop like endangering? Or, you know, he's this high profile guy who agreed to do this job. So does that put him more in the venue of like a public official who can be kind of expected to, to get more flack than your normal person who works at a court? Um, so I kind of came away with the conclusion that I think probably the gag order, some version of the gag order will stand, but I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of narrow it even further from what the district court said. And that brings up this bigger question of like, is the judiciary in a fit state to kind of defend itself from Trump? Because... You know, the thing that makes all of these proceedings so surreal is like, as we said, there are really serious legal questions here and you you don't want to just strip criminal defendants of their rights willy nilly. But Trump is the singular figure who's got masses that he can activate and that which we've seen be activated, right? Like he'll post about these people and then their courts will get death threats. I mean, it's all tied into the same fabric that kind of left Paul Pelosi attacked in their home. You know, it's, it's all the same thing. And it's this weird dance where like Trump is a normal person and you have to treat him like that, but he's so much more powerful than a normal person. And like that has to enter the equation. And it's also part of this thing we've been talking about forever, which is why would Trump stop running for office when the fact of him running does afford him, you know, not like an explicit legal protection, but it gives everybody this queasiness about not, you know, curtailing his rights and, and not skewing the election?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing, you know, when you dig into the legal specifics of it, there are there are real issues, right? Um at the same time I think we at least have to start with the unquestionable reality it's a little different in that new york case since that's not a that's not the people being criminal defendants so i'm not even sure they could remand him in that case in that case it's what it's a criminal it's a criminal trial against the company Am I remembering this right? And so in that case, it's not he is not a criminal defendant. The company is a criminal defendant. But in these ones in which he is a criminal defendant, there is no question anybody else on facing facing felony indictments who is out there saying the judge is a lying sleazeball and deserves to be hanged or whatever. Man, you are in jail so fast it's 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 not even funny i mean not even like you don't even in 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 just the way that criminal trials work in this country you don't need to construct an argument well okay how is 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 the defendant saying the judge should have her head cut off what is the (laughs) what's the nexus between this and her head actually being cut off man no way no way you just get in the judge's face like that you're done you're going to spend the entire the entire course of litigation behind, you know, behind bars. And and maybe that's a little problematic in itself, but I think we have to recognize is that when you when you're indicted, you lose a lot of rights to start with. I mean, the, the most obvious of which is that if if the state can just show there's a chance you might flee, you gotta be in prison. That's a that's a huge that's a that's a huge right to you know to lose right there. Um, And it is it's certainly it's certainly true that um, to the extent that he is arguing that he's being persecuted, that it would someone who is making such an argument should be allowed to continue to make their case. And one could imagine in that case if Trump was saying, well you know it's 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 such a hard hypothetical to imagine Trump speaking publicly with some sort of maybe poor rational case but making an argument as opposed to these kind of just like florid over the top tirades it's it's yet another case where our system is not really equipped for someone who's so over the top and out of control as Trump, or maybe to put it more accurately, someone who plays over the top as part of his modus operandi. You know, it's, it's, I was actually rereading some stuff about, this kind of sound kind of random, William the Conqueror, right? The Norman Duke who took over England a thousand years ago. And a lot of questions about how he was able to make that stick, over over time, and one of the best arguments is is that he just didn't follow any of the rules that you know. Let's put it you know, for lack of a better word, the norms of early medieval chivalric northwestern European culture, and he was willing to commit levels of violence that were way over the top, even by the standards of that period, which were pretty pretty flexible when it came to killing people right and that was there's a very good argument that that was the people were not prepared for what he was willing to do and that gave him this kind of built-in advantage and and when I was reading this I was almost sort of like wow this is kind of uh you know I think we've heard this this sounds familiar Right. And we know this, that that whole norm busting thing that that um, ever since the 2016 primaries, when um, he was operating and in that in that early stage, it was to to a real extent, not like governing norms, just campaign norms. How do campaigns work? And he was able to move so much faster and operate in such a different way that the the more traditional campaigns didn't know what to do with it. So, you know, we're seeing that uh, again here. Why would we we'd be surprised? Of course we are, right?
0: Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, so you, you do it, you know, just before we move to our last topic, you got to almost hand, him, hand it to him in terms of his total willingness to like just shit all over like the person who is in charge of deciding like what his sentence will be you know and I know there's like oh it's because he never faces consequences and blah blah blah, and it's all tied into the stuff about how he's bad but it's just like crazy to kind of you know, go before a judge who holds your entire fate in his or her hands and then go home and like whip out your phone and be like, that guy's a dick. You know, it's just like, oh my God. It's no, just- but
1: as you can as you well, I guess there's two parts of that. One is is that as we can see, he is able to go so over the top and be in such a unique position when he is created that somehow that becomes and it even becomes to the people who are his targets the judges somehow it becomes their problem rather than his problem yeah because now they need to make really clear that it's that the fix isn't in or you know really really clear that uh That they're 100% being fair and not anti-Trump. And as we know, that's one of his superpowers is to, you know, yeah, after you say that the judge is a worthless drunk and a fuckhead and a sleazeball, yeah, they probably are pretty anti-Trump because you suck. (laughs) You're you're (laughs) like, you're, you're treating them like shit. But that, you know, again, becomes somehow becomes his advantage. and I. But but I think at the, it also reflects something more particular in this case, which is that he's got to figure, if he's going to wriggle his way out of this, it's not going to be through the normal process. It's because right. he is elected president and he makes it all go away, or he isn't elected president, but he just keeps it bottled up and appeals till he dies or whatever. I mean, he's not... He's clearly he has clearly written off the option of going before the judge and expressing remorse and saying, Judge, can you cut me some slack here for old time's sake? Right. That's not what he's going with.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's uh, round it out with something a little more lighthearted, e.g. the House Ethics Report, which came out late last week, but after we'd recorded and detailed the many um, I don't even know what to call them—the many weirdnesses and crimes and assorted misdeeds of George Santos, um, who has since announced that he will not run for re-election to the crushing disappointment of his constituents. <laughs> um, this report was so weird. Did you read it?
1: I I did not read. I I read a few parts of it. And I read about, the rundowns of it.
0: Yeah, it was so like. I think the thing that struck me is he engaged into so many behaviors that it was inevitable that he would be caught doing. You know, it's not like there's some stuff in there that you can see, OK, there might be a long game here. Like that he he clearly thinks he can kind of get away with shifting money around between his like his fake um you know, firm and his FEC accounts and his personal account. And like a lot of it is just shifting money between those things and then putting them into his personal account so he can like pay for, you know, all the attention grabbing parts of the report, the the Botox and the OnlyFans and the Hampton vacations and his entire honeymoon and, and everything like that. But there are parts, especially when the kind of investigators get involved, where they talk about they said you know, who is your like tax preparer, right? Like we need to kind of talk to that person. He's like, oh, it's this woman. So they go and talk to the woman and she's like, no, I'm not. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like I I didn't do his tax. Like that kind of stuff where it's like obvious he's going to get caught, right? It's not like they're not going to follow up on that. But at every step, it'll just be stuff like, you know what? Okay. I'll send you those documents by the end of the day. Don't Right. Don't send the documents. And then it's like, oh, you know, I, well, I, I'm just I'm straightening these two things out and then I'll send them and doesn't send them. But with the only exception to that being the part that the House Ethics Committee was not able to substantiate, which were allegations of sexual misconduct from someone who had, I just think interviewed for his office. I don't think the person was actually hired. Um, and in that, the, the investigators say he was a perfect cooperator, like he res- he was responsive. He handed over all the documents that they wanted. And then they kind of conclude that section saying like, just to be clear, we don't, we're not trying to say that he's a good person. We're saying this is kind of <laughs> further proof that when he thinks cooperating is his own, is in his own interest, he is capable of doing it. Right.
1: Well, in many, as we know, in many cases, certainly if it's only, um, if it's only interviewing for a job, there may not be any evidence when when you're an employee there's there's that will often generate paper or you have coworkers or whatever so it's not it it's certainly plausible that whoever the accuser was it was valid but there just wasn't any it was just two conflicting testimonies
0: yeah it just it reminds me of i don't know if uh you've watched that like Netflix fictionalization of the Anna Delvey story is she's one of, I, okay. <laughs> yes, but I know it, what you're that, talking about. It came out of a, I think, maybe Vanity Fair or a cut piece, but it's all about just this woman who kind of was this like almost incredibly effective operator in New York in terms of like taking advantage of rich people. And, you know, she had nothing to back it up and everything like that. But, um, Part of her story, both in the article and the fictionalization, is just like, you can, there's a point where she's reaching the end of the road, right? Where like too many people are paying attention and too many powerful people are paying attention for her to get away with this for much longer. And it's almost this frantic sense of like, Operating at like hyperspeed to, you know, put off the reality that there are going to be consequences and to still try to find a way to burrow out of it, even when the net is kind of tightening. And that's right. exactly the sense I got from this report, right? Like in those early days, it's like big loans to himself. And like when staffers bring it up, he's like, oh, don't worry about it. And then when uh, when outside entities start to get whiffs of this, he's like, it was the treasure. It's the crooked treasure, right? It's not me. And then as they start getting closer, closer and closer to the end of this process. It's just more of that kind of like frantic, like, no, 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 that was this, this red herring, this red herring, you know, like trying to kind of obfuscate um, to to avoid the consequences. And I just, it's weird because you, you can never know about the psychology of this person, right? Like there's clearly a lot of weird shit going on for All of for one person to have generated this degree of lies and schemes and all in the service of kind of self-aggrandizement. Like there's obviously something psychologically loose there. Most people don't do this kind of thing. But I was just like wondering, like, do you think he's internalized the fact that he's going to prison when all is said and done?
1: When he announced he was not running for re-election, that was the first time I kind of thought, like, okay, maybe there's some realization. But, like it's remarkable that he has sustained this till now, because I mean, rationally speaking that was that was pretty crystal clear in January, certainly by February and march I, I don't remember when we first got sort of concrete um, you know concrete confirmation that there was a federal investigation but Remark, I mean, he's still been out there talking about his reelection campaign, talking about his fight against the deep state. You know, just like, dude, wait, wait, don't you know you're going to prison? You know, don't, don't, <laughs> like, he, he's, he, he does have sort of like Trump, one of these reality distortion vortexes around him where you hear him continuing to play it straight well, play it not straight, but, you know, play it like it's like, like none of this is happening that you're watching. You're like, wait a second, maybe is, is he, is he not going to go to jail? Is, is, is he just, is he just going to keep being a a, a congressman? You know, what you described there about, you know, just the, obviously someone, someone can, can commit an organized system of financial fraud for for a fairly long time at least until people you know before people start looking really closely um but as you said some are like you know don't if you if you're going to like use your your campaign contributions for botox or to i whatever you know go on vacation with that's going to catch up with you and it's funny it's it it sort of reminds me that These are the kind of things that people do when they have like a terminal illness or they're about to like, you know, go on the lam abroad, you know, disappear. And they're kind of like, you know, buying stuff on the company credit card and doing all sorts of stuff because it won't catch up with them because they're heading out either in the great cosmic sense or, you know, gonna go set up a uh, become a warlord in Libya. Right, one of the, one of these two things. But here, it it's it's clearly characterological. And you know, he before we finish up here, two you know two big mistakes. If he would have just in the week or two after that first article ran in the New York Times last December, almost a year ago, if he just would have said, "I'm resigning," this was a bad idea. He probably would have not. I I doubt he ever would have been investigated, um, just because. It took a while for for really to be clear. It wasn't just like saying you you know you hold the world record for the hundred yard dash. It wasn't just a bunch of nonsense that there was like lots and lots of criminal activity. The other mistake was prosecutors always see it as a big. Thing of value if you'll resign from office, if you're a public official, an elected official, if you'll resign. So that's a big chit to hold on to in plea negotiations. That's something you can, get off, you can give up and get a much lighter uh, sentence. But at this point, it seems highly likely he will be uh, expelled from Congress in about a week. So if you're the prosecutor, you're like, why would I give you something for that? You're right. toast in a week. I'm just going to I'm just going to wait. So if for everybody who kind of has grumbled that why aren't there consequences, just wait, he's he's stacked up a lot of consequences for himself.
0: Yep. All right.
1: All right. Well, that is our uh, abbreviated. Actually, turned out to not even be wildly abbreviated episode <laughs> right before Thanksgiving. Be, yeah, we're we so have bad a
0: bad at abbreviating. Ourselves. Yeah,
1: we do. We are bad at it. So, uh, if you're listening to this uh, tonight, Wednesday night, or tomorrow, traveling uh, to your Thanksgiving dinner, uh, have a great Thanksgiving. Have a great Thanksgiving weekend with your family or whoever you know, whoever you are sharing it with. And remember, we have this special deal right now. You can uh, sign up for a TPM membership, an annual membership, take you right through the 2024 election, whatever comes our way with our special, unique, and non crappy way of covering elections. And if you do that right now, you get 30% off. Just go to the site, you'll see ads for it, sign up now, take you through the election and get a a really uh, nice, steep discount. And that's all we have for this week.
0: All right. Well, we'll see you next week. See ya. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.
1: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail.